right back where I started again I'm trying to forget you was just a waste of time Baby, come back Any kind of fool could see There was something in everything about you Baby, come back You can blame it all on me I was wrong You know, that song is disturbingly apt for the topic we have today. We are talking about de-extinction. Well chosen song by Carolyn McCusker, our producer for this episode. When Carolyn came to me to to propose this episode, I said, well, we did one a few years ago. We did a de-extinction show, but it focused on an animal I'm not even going to mention today. It's the M word preceded by the adjective woolly. So we would have to do a de-extinction show that did not contain the woolly M. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the de-extinction of so many other things, ranging from the dodo to the thylacine, a.k.a. Tasmanian tiger, to to Elvis, to Neanderthals. We've got a lot on our plate today. And uh, to get us started, nobody better than Dr. Helen Pilcher, a science writer, a scientist, uh, and an author, uh, and the author most significantly, for our purposes, of Bring Back the King. You see what she did there? Tyrannosaurus Rex, Elvis, etc. Bring Back the King, the new science of de-extinction. It would be good if I could actually pronounce the name of the topic of today's show. Uh, Dr. Helen Pilcher, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's talk about, there is no magic formula for de-extinction, but there's two sine qua knowns, right? You've got to have something approaching intact DNA, and then you've got to have a place to put that DNA that is a close cousin of the extinct animal. But that, that, that doesn't mean you're good to go, right? There's a lot of steps in between those two. Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. So what you need for any de-extinction project is a source of the original DNA. You need the genetic recipe. And then you need some kind of uh, closely related species from whom you're going to borrow bits of biology. So uh, with a dodo, we've got dodo DNA. We know the dodo's genetic sequence. And its closest living relative is the Nicobar pigeon, uh, which is a beautiful, beautiful bird, much, much smaller than the dodo. So you've got those two starting ingredients, which is great. But along the way, you're going to need much more than that. So um, I can go into the details if you're interested. But one of the most significant things to consider is suppose um, the scientists manage to make something approximating a little dodo chick, right? So we'll jump to that point, presume that that's possible. Now, there's quite a lot of technology that needs to be developed before that becomes possible if it happens. But let's think about the moment that dodo chick hatches. Now, dodos were a type of pigeon. We know that all pigeons, when they first hatch, are fed uh, a really fatty, rich crop milk, um, which they receive from their mum. So the very first dodo chick to hatch won't have a dodo mum. It will be born to a chicken, which I know sounds crazy. Uh, But it is possible for um, one species of bird to lay the egg of another. Now, that's all well and good, maybe, bit weird, uh, but chickens don't make crop milk. So we bring in a third species here. We've had the Nicobar pigeon. We've had the chicken. Now you're going to have to have a human raising these very first dodos, feeding them crop milk. And the big question here is, how does a dodo 
without dodo parents know to be a dodo? How does it know how to act like a dodo? And a lot of its behavior will be genetically programmed, but we can't say with certainty that it will know everything to do because sadly, dodos went extinct long before anybody had a chance to study them scientifically. So there's all these things that we need to think about. Right. We humans have a bad habit of saying, wow, there's a new animal we've never seen before. Let's hunt it to extinction without ever studying it. Um, right. And so we have this, this problem occurs over and over again. But yeah, in the case of the dodo, uh, we should say the dodo is from an island near Madagascar. One thing we know that its mother didn't teach it is stay away from Dutch and Portuguese sailors, uh, which is good advice generally anyway. But so that's what happened. They were hungry. Sometimes they would kill them just for their gizzards. Uh, it's the whole thing. It's just a, a nightmare. But my sense of this is that introducing egg laying into the de-extinction conversation adds another layer of complexity. It's a little bit different than, and maybe we can talk about Bacardo goats and thylacines in just a second, but somehow or other the egg thing is a little tricky. Yeah, the, the egg thing, as, as you call it, is quite tricky. So nobody's managed to clone a bird for various reasons. Cloning birds, very, very tricky, hasn't been done. So some of the basic methods, and I say basic in inverted commas because there's nothing basic about them, but some of the the methods being used to bring back the woolly M-word um, or um, the thylacine, some of those methods you can't apply to birds. So you need to do it slightly differently in birds. And that involves taking a very early embryonic cell from the Nicobar pigeon, from the dodo's relative, editing that so it becomes dodo-like. Then you put that cell into an embryonic chicken and when that chicken grows up, the chicken starts to produce either dodo eggs, if it's a female, or dodo sperm, if it's a male. And then when a, a, a chimeric, a weird <laughs> mummy chicken loves a, a weird chimeric daddy chicken very much, and they get together, the offspring in theory would be a dodo. So, so it, I, I've, I've simplified it there, but yes. that is basically it. It's a complicated process and it involves three species rather than two. But the chicken is really just being used as a, a vessel, if you like, to produce the sperm and the egg and to, to nurture uh, the egg inside the shell as the bird develops. We had a question from our vast studio audience about crop milk. Crop milk is what the certain birds kind of regurgitate into their babies' mouths, right? Exactly right, crop milk, yeah. So it's this very um, lipid, rich, fatty stuff, uh, which is regurgitated from the mum to the newly hatched bird. Uh, so a chicken couldn't do that for a dodo. Uh, but in theory, you know, there are so many things that need to be developed and thought about for this project. Uh, but one of the things is, what do you feed these birds when right. they first hatch? And there are people who hand rear pigeons, so it's it's possible. But again, we don't know for sure what the um, recipe for dodo crop milk was because nobody, as you say, nobody had a chance to study it before it went. So, you know, how do we look after these fledglings if and when they're born? How do they learn how to be dodos? Where do you release them? Massive question. You know, Mauritius has lost about 60% of its forest cover. So we're going to have to think very carefully um, about where they go. Um, and, and so the... the 
the post-hatching care you know what's the purpose of this who looks after these birds um how are they treated we, we you don't want to bring something back from extinction just for it to be stared at in a zoo and i don't think anyone's suggesting that it needs to play an ecological role so there's all these things that people need to think about right and so i think for a lot of people the very idea of de-extinction seems like pie possibly topped with crop milk in the sky uh, whereas <laughs> in fact I mean, it's been done. I mean, the Bacardo goat, it was a very brief de-extinction. It was like, I think, de-extinction for a cup of tea. Uh, but but it was done, yeah. right? Yeah. So the Bucardo was this um, species of mountain, subspecies of mountain goat that went extinct around about the turn of the millennia. Scientists had already collected some cells from the last living female. So they had some DNA and they had some cells. They used those cells for cloning, took hundreds of attempts. So lots of failed attempts, lots of embryos that didn't make it, but they did have one little Bucardo, one de-extinct Bucardo that was born. Um, she was an exact copy of the animal that they cloned her from, more or less. Um, she survived for, um, like you say, roughly the, the amount of time it takes to make a cup of tea. And then very sadly, she died from uh, respiratory failure, and we think that that was linked to the cloning process. So the Bucardo wasn't just the first animal to be de-extinct. It was the first animal ever to go extinct twice. Um, so, and, and when we're going to be talking to Ben Lamb from Colossus, from Colossus in the... Uh, uh, in the second segment here, and I think there's some interesting questions about sort of, you know, even how you care for a newborn de-extincted creature uh, and and what part of fundraising might include that. But I, I think also it would be interesting to talk about, I mean, once again, some of the more recently de-extincted species uh, are probably easier to get at. So let's just take a moment for the thylamine, a.k.a. the Tasmanian tiger, which is a stupid name because it wasn't a tiger. Um, and um, so this is something, what, it's about 100 years out now from extinction, something around that? Yeah, off the top of my head, it was it was around about 1904. It went to, it was, it was the early 20th century. It went extinct, <clears throat> again, after a long history of human persecution. And um, it's another one of the colossal projects. Really, really interesting because this animal was a marsupial. So it could be the first marsupial to be de-extinct if that goes ahead. Um, we've got its DNA. Uh, there are some marsupial relatives that you might be able to use for that kind of like additional species that you, you need. And interestingly, the closest living relative is, uh, I forget its name, but it's, it's basically an animal that is much, much smaller. And you go, Whoa, like, well, hang on a minute. How it's like the size, of a, the, the size of a mouse, right? It's a, like it's yeah, a mouse it's size. Yeah, a numbat or something. Ben, yeah. will, ben will tell you. Uh, but, but of course, um, marsupials give birth to these tiny, tiny youngsters. You know, there's the size of a bean or a grain of rice. And then they crawl up and into their mother's pouch. So actually, that could be quite a, a blessing in terms of the scientists who are trying to make this happen because you don't have to implant it in the womb of a surrogate animal. You just need some kind of furry pouch where it could hang out and have some milk. And I'm, I'm being flippant. That's not a trivial thing uh, to arrange. But again, you know, I see a, a lot of the uh, media attention around these projects. And I'm really interested to hear from Ben how much attention to detail they've um, 
are paying to further down the line if and when these animals are created. Now, I know the team of scientists there are hugely responsible and very good at what they do and are interested at bringing stakeholders like ecologists and community members into the discussion. And we have to have those people on board because we we need to make sure these projects go beyond the lab science and have the interests of the animals at stake, not just for their lifetime, but for the lifetime of the whole of their de-extincted species. You know, where are these species going to live for the next few hundred years? Who will be taking care of them? Uh, will they be safe? Will they be um, subject to the same extinction pressures? You know, what drove them to extinction the first time round? Is that likely to get them again? Because just jumping back to the dodo, um, sure, they were they were clubbed around the head and eaten by Portuguese sailors. But one of the biggest problems for the dodo was all the invasive species that the Europeans brought to Mauritius. Uh, and there were still a lot of invasive species that could compete and potentially eat dodo chicks if they ended up back in the wild. Right. The Tasmanian tiger, um, it was basically hunted to extinction. So how will people will people welcome the Tasmanian tiger back when they might see it as a threat to their livestock? There's not very much evidence, I have to say, that it was a threat to people's livestock. Um, but, you know, we, we need to be thinking about these, these long-term welfare questions. And the other thing I'd just like to bring into the debate at this point as well, we also need to be thinking, what's the purpose of doing this? Why are we doing this? And there are lots of different reasons why you might think de-extinction would be a good idea. But for me, there's only one compelling reason. And it's not that we have some moral obligation or that we should, you know, we can do it. For me, the only viable reason for this is an argument about biodiversity. So if you bring de-extinct creatures back, you boost biodiversity. And if you choose that species really, really careful, so if you make it what people call a keystone species, which means that that animal creates opportunities for other species to thrive and you bring it back, you're boosting biodiversity, not just because you brought that species back, but because it will help other species to thrive too. So I think there is this quite compelling ecological narrative behind bringing some of these species back. But, and here's the thing, do we know, do we know enough about their ecology to be sure um, that the benefits for the environment and for biodiversity outweigh the costs, both to you know monetary, but also more importantly to animal welfare. Um, and you know, a, a lot of animals will not make it mm. through the through the laboratory process of their creation. So there's there's this much sort of bigger pull, I think, that we need to think about basically. But for me. The ecological thing is really exciting. And the other last point I'll make is that all of these techniques that scientists are developing now to de-extinct animals, we're not about to have a de-extinct animal tomorrow. These are, these are things that are being developed. But for me, the most exciting thing isn't about bringing back a dodo. It's about applying the technology that scientists are developing to endangered species. So to the species that we already have, so this technology that Colossal are developing to bring back the dodo, some of the methods that they are developing could be applied 
to endangered species that are still with us now. And that, for me, is actually the thing that I think is the most exciting. Yeah, something like the white rhino, where you can catch it while it's falling, not pick it up after it hit the ground. Um, That seems more promising and more workable and eminently desirable. Hey, before we run out of time, so I... I'm from a fairly small family. I don't have a lot of relatives, a lot of living relatives. And I've been told by 23andMe that my Neanderthal DNA is rather high. Uh, Me too. So, yeah. So I'm just thinking, you know, when when Carolyn first proposed this show, I said, well, what about Neanderthals? Could we we get Neanderthals back too as long as we're de-extincting things? Uh, So obviously there are just massive ethical questions here. But give us a quick, you know, the three-minute trip through some of the considerations here. Right, okay. So the first thing to say is no one's thinking about doing this. You mentioned Elvis at the top of the show as well. Likewise, we'll get to, We will get to Elvis, all right. All right, okay. So Neanderthals, no one is thinking about doing it, but it, I, I was interested in it as a thought experiment in my book. And one of, the, in fact, I spoke to one of the leading scientists who now works with Colossal about this. Um, one of the really kind of amusing things is, so... Neanderthals, obviously an extinct, an extinct species of human, very similar to us genetically. We know more about human developmental biology than we do any other species. No one has ever cloned a human. No one should ever clone a human. Many, many reasons why that's a terrible idea. But actually, do you know what? Probably it's going to be far more difficult to clone a woolly mammoth than it is to clone a human, precisely because... We've been studying human embryology so closely for a long time. So could you bring back a Neanderthal? In theory, you could. Should you? Well, I would argue it's a fairly pointless procedure, as well as being, you know, immoral, unethical, and probably dangerous to the new Neanderthal and to the surrogate mum. There's really no point. So we have have this idea of Neanderthals being these loincloth-wearing thugs that used to just club each other around the head. Now we realise they were actually pretty sophisticated. And I think... If anyone did did bring a Neanderthal back and expect that they'd be watching an episode of the Flintstones, they would be really disappointed to find out that they wouldn't be so different to us. After all, you'd be raising a Neanderthal in a very different world. You know, instead of uh, stone tools and arrows, they'd be playing with um, iPads and uh, computer consoles. And we'd probably find they weren't so different to us after all so so what would we learn from that you know not very much so yeah not in favor of it but as a thought experiment i thought it was kind of an interesting one to look at well it's not true that nobody's thinking about de-extincting the neanderthals because i'm thinking about de i don't I, i don't have anything to bring to the party but i'm thinking about it all right so another thought experiment that you did and it wasn't exactly fully confined to the arena of thought uh, was bringing back the other king. Yes, there's Tyrannosaurus Rex, but there's also Elvis. So tell yeah. us a little bit about the the way you dipped your toe into that question. Right. So again, I just thought, wow, what an interesting thought experiment. If you can bring back a Neanderthal in theory, how about we choose a person from the past? Could we clone them? Could we bring them back? Now again, no one's doing this. It's unethical. It's immoral. It's a dreadful idea for lots of reasons. So I put that caveat out there first. But could you do it, right? So I went on eBay 
and I bought a sample of Elvis Presley's hair. Cost I, me about I hope you were very, very careful about that because an awful lot of the Elvis hair on eBay is actually from Roy Orbison. That's that's come out. <laughs> but. Well, that could explain a lot of things, actually. I'm not convinced it was genuine. But anyway, so, so the question is, if you have a single strand of somebody's hair, can you get enough DNA from it to get a high-quality copy of their genetic sequence? The answer is yes, you can. And if you've got that high-quality copy, could you for example, work out what all the bits were that were unique to Elvis that no one else had and edit them into a human cell? The answer is yes, in theory. Could you use that cell for cloning? Yes, in theory. Um, you would then have um, a little embryo that is basically a, a twin brother to the original Elvis, but obviously born you know, many, many decades apart. Um, and then uh, a woman carries that little embryo to term and a baby is born. So then you've got this really interesting thought experiment similar to the Neanderthals with how Elvis or not would this kid be and how much is who we end up to be as people down to our genetics and the environment. You know, what if this kid who incidentally would have a dreadful life under the spotlight, like the Truman Show <laughs> right. on acid. It would be horrific. You think Prince, Prince uh, Harry, Prince Harry thinks he had it bad. Uh, yeah, this right, would be exactly. so much worse. And you, you'd want to time the birth for June, so you'd have sort of a second Christmas in the middle of yeah. the, the middle of the year. But yeah, I think the the other question, the question that you're posing is, you know, you can you can make a thylacine, you can make a Tasmanian tiger, but what did its mother and its siblings or whoever teach it? You know, does it know to go eat a Tasmanian devil? And you can make another Elvis. But what would it know? You know, what if it were caught in a trap and it couldn't get out? Um, <laughs> what if it was cloned some tonight? I mean, <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> All right. You topped me on that one. That was pretty good. Yes. Would it, would it know how to make a peanut butter and banana sandwich? Um, yeah. Yeah. Would it be more into drum and bass and R&B than rock and roll? <laughs> would it prefer trainers over blue suede shoes? You know, what if this kid has a throat infection when he's five years old and he never sings a note, you know, this, you know, and, and this experiment has already been done around the world many times over in that identical twins we know may look the same, but they grow up into two very different people. So we can never bring back Elvis. And in the book, I tell the, the lovely statistical story of how there's no point bringing back Elvis, because when Elvis was born, there were no Elvis impersonators. At the point of his death, there were about 150 Elvis impersonators. In 2012, there were about 43,000 Elvis impersonators. And if you plot that on a graph, you get an exponential curve, which means that the number of Elvis impersonators is now increasingly so rap increasing so rapidly uh, that in about 30 years time, every single person on the planet will be an Elvis impersonator. So, so we don't need to bring him back because, you know, very soon we'll, we'll all be singing Jailhouse Rock. Yeah, either that, or if you're an Elvis impersonator right now and you just heard those numbers, you should be working on a Harry Styles. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, which is also a very good name for a Neanderthal. All right, we have to stop. It's too much fun. Uh, it's too much fun with you, Dr. Helen Pilcher, uh, scientist and clearly comedy writer, uh, author of Bring Back the King, the New Science of De-Extinction. Thank you so much for being with us. We will come back with the aforementioned Ben Lamb. He's the CEO of the company that's going to do some of this stuff.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Yes, they have Cher playing all day long at the headquarters uh, of Colossal. Uh, We're going to talk to its CEO right now, Ben Lamb. Uh, Colossal, a company which he co-founded with George Church, who I might add, I believe was consulted by Helen about the Elvis project and said it was not it was not infeasible. I'm, I'm going to uh, put it that way. So, Ben Lamb, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I was listening on and Helen made some great points. Well, I, we should talk about those points, but maybe we should just begin by the idea of what is Colossal. Uh, explain how this company came about. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm fortunate enough to uh, be one of the co-founders and CEO, but Colossal is, uh, I think, the world's first de-extinction company. I think a lot of people have been talking about de-extinction and looking at new technologies for species preservation of critically endangered species, but uh, I think we may be the first company trying to to go after these things. Um, and it came about with uh, my background is building companies, of uh, technology companies kind of at the brink of the next wave of innovation with much smarter people than me. And I reached out to George uh, to talk to him about a completely different project. Um, he got me excited about ecosystem restoration and biodiversity reintroduction and, and uh, bringing back mammoths. And, you know, bef- before you knew it, I uh, left my last my last CEO position, uh, and, and followed him on this. It, w- it would seem to me, and from what I also know about Colossal, this is an unusual company in the sense that you kind of have to build out the entire production line from from the germ of an idea to the emplacement uh, of some kind of uh, finished imagined creature into a habitat, right? There's, there just aren't a lot of subcontractors available to do the stuff yeah, that you're I talking think- about doing. Yeah, it's, it's a full infrastructure, right? Like I, a lot of incredible scientists from around the world have done research on ancient DNA. They've done work on embryology. They've done work on, you know, genetic engineering tools, stem cell reprogramming and induced pluripotent stem cell work. There's been a lot of great animal husbandry work and, and you know, conservation zoos are like doing a lot of work with, with top NGOs on in that field, like trying to help critically endangered species. But you have to build all of the infrastructure. And so a lot of times people ask, well, why did you guys raise... $225 million is because 
we, you know, we have over 107 scientists, but we had to build all of those disciplines, right? Because if we get to the genome of a mammoth and we get to uh, the cells of a mammoth, but we don't have a way to, you know, uh, work with animal husbandry in order to grow a mammoth, then that's not going to be successful, right? Like you, you don't get a mammoth with part of these projects. You be part of the part of the pieces of the project. You have to build the entire infrastructure. And I, I do think that it's a systems problem. And you know, several of the co-founders were come from software, software, and so saw a lot of software problems or systems problems. So I think co coming from a different world outside of biology, let us take a new, uh, you know, bring a new lens to the problem. It seems to me that one of the hardest things to anticipate is one of the things that Helen was talking about. So let's say that you make a thylacine. That's the Tasmanian tiger. And and so presumably you're going to, at some point, maybe people are going to want to introduce it into the habitat it used to inhabit. Uh, and there are some good things that come out could come out of that. For example, Tasmanian devils, also a wrongly named species, have some kind of weird face cancer that they transmit to each other. And you know, you, if you could suppress the population a little bit, maybe you could stabilize it. That there's things on an ideal basis that re reintroducing a form of predation could accomplish. But it's a little bit of a shot in the dark, right? You don't really know that that it would play out the same way again. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about in, in what Helen was referring to is kind of intended versus unintended consequences, right? And, and really understanding that. So you mentioned Tasmanian devils. I was fortunate enough uh, last August to reintroduce Ned. You know, Ned was the 21st Tasmanian devil being reintroduced without the facial tumor disease back into mainland Australia, right? And we worked with the incredible team at, uh, at, at WildArk uh, or sorry, at, at uh, Aussie Arc to do it. And what was interesting is it's a very gated process, right? So these rewilding initiatives aren't just you make Tasmanian devils or in the case of the thylacine, you bring back the thylacine, you make a bunch of them, you open up the, the doors and then you cross your fingers, right? It's a very thoughtful, you know, there's ecologists involved, there's indigenous people groups involved, there's governments, there's other scientists, uh, there's animal welfare uh, folks involved. It, it's a very collaborative process. And so um, we, we we started to work, uh, you know, with different groups in Australia to understand their rewilding processes, uh, uh, you know, of, of existing uh, but threatened and endangered marsupials. And then, you know, for us, even though we don't have thylacines today, we don't have dodos today, and we don't have mammoths today, we are actively engaging with gov local governments, indigenous people groups, Fish and wildlife are the equivalent thereof in, in, in country. EPA are the equivalent thereof in, in country and the public at large. You know, so we're working with the Alaskan government. We're working with the Mauritian government and then uh, for the Dodo, obviously. And then we're working very closely with the Tasmanian government. I'm actually going to be back with the Tasmanian government um, in October of this uh, of this year. And so even though we're years away from having thylacines and even further away from reintroducing back to the wild, we're starting those conversations now because it's not about you know, hoping for the best with reintroduction or hoping to get, you know, approval in the future. It's really about collaborating from day one. So the Dodo is a fairly recent addition, as I understand it, to Colossal's game plan. Talk about why that happened and what the special challenges are. I used the phrase, the egg thing, uh, to Helen, who seemed to find that acceptable if an insufficient way to describe the problem. But first of all, talk yeah. about why, why, how did the dodo get back on the... So yeah, go ahead. I'll tell you how it came to be, and then we'll, we, we can talk about the the, the challenges and opportunities that, that, that I think can come from it. So how it came to be is, you know, we, we have an incredible group of of uh, investors like Thomas Sowell and Jim Breyer and others 
And they, and you know, in our board meetings and our investor reports, we show the progress that we're making on our mammalian species, being the the mammoth and the thylacine. And some of the work, when you start to bring all the people we've brought together worldwide from some of these top research groups, as well as the infrastructure and the teams and technologies that we've we've acquired, we're making progress at a faster rate than we set expectations publicly on. And, um, and the investors were excited. And so we got feedback from our investors of if you were to take on a third species, what would it be and why? We feel like the the dodo is not only a, a case that, you know, is, uh, it was, you know, destroyed by, it went extinct due to, due to man's introduction of invasive species into Mauritius and some hunting, but mostly introduction of invasive species. But fundamentally, you know, uh, it is the symbol of man-made and man-caused extinction events of, of biodiversity, right? And so we felt if we were a de-extinction company, it's something that we should work on. It was also a great excuse to start working on the challenges that come with avian de-extinction work, which I which I can talk about. And our lead paleogeneticist, Beth Shapiro, um, who ironically wrote the book, uh, How to Clone a Mammoth, which, spoiler alert, ends with you can't clone a mammoth. That was a, that was a point that Helen brought up. Uh, it would be harder. You, you cannot clone mammoths. You have to engineer them from... Uh, traits that you in genetic uh, uh, analysis of, of the genomes, uh, you can't just straight up clone them because we don't have the full genome or or living cells. So Helen was one hundred percent right on on that. It's not even hard. It's it's you know currently impossible. Um, but what I will say is what's interesting is that uh, Beth actually worked on the mammoth or, or sorry on the uh, dodo genome for fifteen plus years, and so we have uh, this incredible you know feedback and support from our investors. Uh, we we wanted to get into to work on uh, uh, avian genomics at some point, and um, you know we had Beth Shapiro as one of our lead paleogeneticists and scientific scientific advisory board members that's been helping us with our various projects, who also had the dodo genome, and so it was kind of the perfect storm for us to say, okay, well if we get additional capital, we can you know stand up an avian genomics group and and go after it. So before we run out of time here, one thing that you kind of hinted at at the beginning of our conversation, but is worth mentioning now, every time you have to solve a problem, uh, I mean, this is like a moonshot, right? And, and the one thing about the space program is that it just threw off all kinds of technology that we now take for granted. I'm assuming as you're solving these problems, software, hardware, wetware, I mean, if you have to get really good at making stem cells, the the possible spinoff from that is not limited to extinct animals. Yeah, that, that's one hundred percent correct. And so, so for us, it's it's twofold. Any technologies that we make on the path to de extinction that have a, a application to conservation, we're open sourcing, giving to the world for free. It's just important. Like, you know, there's not enough money and technologies going into advance. We are fighting a you know a current century war with many, many, many years of centuries past uh, strategies on loss of biodiversity. So conservation groups need new technologies. So anything that we develop for conservation, we're just giving to the world and open sourcing because we want to we want to help it, um, give new tools to, to those conservation groups. But to your point, anything that we make that has an application to human healthcare, we are gonna spin out and create new companies with. And we did that last year. So we, we, we found a huge gap in the market uh, around computational biology in, in, in building the right system that we needed to do genomic analysis and do targeting and planning and some of the things that um, uh, that, we, that we were working on at Colossal. So we actually spun that company out, raised separate capital uh, for that business. It's called FormBio. Uh, just announced a major partnership yesterday or the day before with Google. And so and it's going really well. And 
We hope that that technology helps, you know, with everything from, you know, de-extinction to cancer research to small molecule design. And, and I think that that will also happen with some of our genetic engineering tools, some of our stem cell work, uh, as well as some of our hardware work. Ben Lamb, this has been fascinating. I just got my social security check. I'm going to send you $3,000. Uh, CEO of the de-extinction company Colossal, which he co-founded with George Church. Thank you so much for spending some time today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll be back in five years to talk about Stellar's Sea Cow. But right now, we got to take a break because you might want to think about plants, too. Plants, well, first of all, a lot of different kinds of plants. And we need some of them more than we even understand. Swear I was born right in the doorway. I went out in the rain, suddenly everything changed. They're spreading blankets on the beach. Yours is the first face that I saw. I think I was blind before I met you. And I don't know where I am, I don't know where I've been. But I know where I want to go. And so I Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season 3 of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season 3 of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. All right, special thanks to our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Also, Dylan Ray has contributed, as usual, some very interesting pre-show music. Uh, and Carolyn McCusker, our newest producer, has done an amazing job of producing this episode. Our senior producer is Lily Tyson. I guarantee you she's floating around somewhere doing something very responsible. It's now time to talk about plants. And, and plants kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit because people go... I want a mastodon. I don't want. Who cares about plants? Well, guess what? Mastodon's going to have to eat something. Uh, Carlos De La Rosa is the president and CEO of the Center for Plant Conservation. Uh, he joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. So you have a great kind of metaphor for all this. It's the it's the metaphor of a library and the toilet paper. So tell tell us that par- <laughs> the the parable of the library and the toilet paper. Oh, boy. Um, that's an old metaphor that I used a long time ago, but I'll, let's see if I can remember where my mind was at that time. Um, th- we have a tremendous amount of uh, biodiversity in this planet, and uh, at the base of uh, life on Earth, basically, uh, all animals and all that, we depend a lot on plants, to, to which has this unique, unique capacity to take sunlight and make stuff out of it, and that stuff... It's the basis of the life of uh, on on our planet. It's the food for many animals, uh, which become themselves food for other ones. And uh, the diversity of plants uh, and uh, in 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 the planet is is extraordinary. And uh, to, in in some ways, we just depend on plants for most of our life. Without plants, we will not be able to exist as humans or as, as animals. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of plants, according to, to most uh, scientific work that has been done. There's about, oh, between 370 and, and almost 400,000 vascular plant species on Earth. And uh, most of these 370 or so thousand are flowering plants, which is 
uh, and, and many of our fruits come from there. So, uh, so, but, to, uh, so to steer you towards your metaphor, so this is like a, having a library containing 8.5 million unique original manuscripts, and the problem oh, is, okay. the, and the problem is, we don't know what the manuscripts are, and yet, what we're going to take a shelf of them uh, every week and make them into toilet paper. So the the risk is we don't even know what we're converting uh, from uh, a living useful thing into a non useful thing. Absolutely, and uh, and uh, that is the the tragedy of, uh, of of not knowing what our biodiversity is. If we if we figure that we have a oh what we're going to say it about uh, eight million species on the on on Earth, uh, and we have uh, so many of them are unknown. We only know about two and a half million species, uh, perhaps even less than that that we have named. There are a lot, a lot of species out there that we have not given names to. And by not giving them names, this, are, this is what uh, my metaphor was, that we have original manuscripts, not copies of books, original manuscripts, which have no titles at this point. We don't know what information they have. We don't know if they have potential to become the next type of foods and a type of medicine or something that we could revolutionize the way that, uh, that we humans and other animals live. Uh, but we're taking a shelf of that library full of uh, of uh, millions of uh, copies of original manuscripts, and then we grind them into toilet paper. Uh, and uh, it, the, it is a loss of information that took millions of years to be produced. And uh, uh, that is what uh, we are trying to 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 prevent, is the loss of information that is critical for the survival, not just of humans, but of life of this planet. So I think a concrete example is always good. So let's talk about the rosy peri- periwinkle. It comes from the neighborhood of the dodo. It comes from the Madagascar <laughs> rainforest. Uh, so yes. uh, explain uh, what what it was and what happened. Yeah, the rosy periwinkle is a, is a, is a fantastic story, and it is a very personal story for some of us. And uh, you'll see uh, at the end of this short conversation why. It is one of those species that, uh, uh, when you look at it, we, we have domesticated it. It's found in the in the gardens of many people and all around the world. It's a domesticated ornamental species. Beautiful green leaves, dark green with beautiful uh, pink, rosy um, flowers. Uh, somebody noticed at some point that this plant is not eaten by many animals, that uh, most of the leaves are always in intact and uh, and on uneaten by herbivores uh, and on analysis of the contents of this uh of this plant of the leaves a number of alkaloids alkaloids are plant poisons poisons that the plants produce to defend themselves against herbivores against insects or animals that would eat them and out of all these alkaloids all these plant poisons two of them have potential for becoming a next generation of medicines uh you know many of the of medicines that we use in chemotherapy for example to treat uh, cancers are actual poisons it's just that you dose them in such a way that you kill the cancer itself or you don't kill the person uh, by giving them these poisons but chemotherapy is essentially the targeting of cells that are growing out of control and this plants produce if this particular plant the rosy periwinkle uh produce uh two uh specific types of uh of alkaloids of, of plant poisons that became essential for the treatment of some 
rather incurable types of cancer. For example, Hodgkin's disease or testicular cancer and uh, other types of cancer. Uh, the, the rate of survival on some of these cancers were minimal, where 90, 95% death when you were uh, exposed, uh, when you were diagnosed with this cancer. This particular uh, chemicals, and they give them names based on the old name of the plant, they're called vincristine and vinblastine, became magical chemicals that cured these types of cancers that were incurable before. So the rate of survival, survival of these cancers went from almost certain death at 95, 98% death to 95% curing, survival. And that is extraordinary. And that came from this little plant. Wait, I should say I, I should say that A, someone very, very, very close to me is currently getting vincristine infusions. And, and you yourself, as I understand it, uh, are among the people yeah. who've experienced this too. Yes. So I do all my life to the rosy periwinkle. Uh, many years ago, I was... Uh, diagnosed with uh, one of the types of cancers that uh, this plant has been used to. And I'm completely cured. It's been 35 years since that. So for me, protecting this plant or the relatives of this plant, because that's where the story goes. And mm -hmm. that's what I what I wanted to bring up, that there are seven other periwinkles in Madagascar. And Madagascar, if you look at a map, it has a lot of forests around the coastal ranges where this other seven periwinkles actually live and they are getting deforested. These this areas are being consumed by uh, the needs for wood and for, and for land. So they could become extinct. Now, if the rosy periwinkle, one of these, the Catharanthus rosius, of that genus Catharanthus, if that rosy periwinkle produced two major life-changing and game-changing medications to treat cancers, Imagine what seven other species that evolve under different conditions and have different genes and different chemicals, what they could, uh, what cancers could they cure? What other diseases could they cure? These seven species that are still in the wild have not been domesticated. They will become extinct at the rate of disappearance of the forest where they live. So for me, this is a personal, uh, a personal uh, job. I want to make sure that we have the opportunity to study these plants and protect them before they become extinct because we're making toilet paper out of the, the forest or we're making the products that are, are not uh, as necessary as the next generation of medis medicines and uh, foods and all those things. We, we have exploited and developed a very small proportion of edible and medicinal plants that exist in the world. But our rate of destruction of the original habitats and forests is such that we're going to lose them before we even know what they could do for us. So the Center for Plant Conservation, one of its tasks is to essentially maintain a database of, of these rare and imperiled plants that we know about and, and where they are currently being preserved, because you want to have multiple specimens of these plants if you're going to be able to save them. Yeah, but it's, it's a complex process because it involves uh, a lot of uh, field surveys and finding where these plants are, what these plants are. Do we know them? Do they have even names? Some of these species have not even been described yet. We, we discover new species all the time. Every, every year, there's a couple thousand species of, of uh, plants and animals that get uh, discovered and named, but we, we know very little about them. 
uh, yet. So we don't know the potential that they have, like the seven other uh, periwinkles out in the in Madagascar. Uh, mm-hmm. So what uh, what uh, the Center for Plant uh, Conservation does uh, is uh, organize the network of botanical gardens that serve as repositories of living collections of these plants. And these living collections could be, we could be in the form of seeds or in, mostly like seed banks or in the form of uh, plants that are grown to produce additional seed. It, it's, there are three, three, um, well, what I call them, um, directions that the, the CPC or the Center for Plant Conservation works. And uh, one is that first you have to find where these plants are, uh, try to, hopefully they are under some level of protection uh, and uh, and uh, bring specimens of those plants into quote unquote captivity into the botanical gardens and uh, the places where they could care for them, study them and bank the seeds. Uh, that is a complex process because uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we have not surveyed all the areas where these plants could be. Habitats are disappearing very rapidly, falling to development. So we are depending on the protected areas like national parks, wildlife refuges, and private or, uh, private areas where these plants could exist, and then collect seeds to bring into ex situ outside of their natural range for study and for protection. It's our, it's our seed bank. Once you have that seed bank under protection, then you have to manage it. It's just not freeze them and hope that uh, you know when you need them they will be ready. You need to know the natural history of each of these species because normally uh, you know we don't know enough about these plants because they're rare plants. We're looking at the rares of the rare. We're looking at the plants that are most at risk of disappearing because their populations are so small out in the wild and they're about to disappear if we don't do something to protect them. We're going to have to and stop there. Finally, I'm going to have to yeah. stop you there, Carlos De, De La Rosa, because yeah, no, no, no. we, we have unfortunately run out of time. But uh, president and CEO of the Center for Plant Conservation, this is a mammoth undertaking, and there are many risks and perils. Uh, and we, if we had more time, we could talk you, to tell you about herbariums yeah. that caught on fire and things like that. So you got to have duplicates. We're going to have to say goodbye. Uh, we're going to have to temporarily extinct our show, but we'll de-instinctify <laughs> ourselves tomorrow for a different topic and a different show. Thanks for listening today. 